Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We are here today with Tim Harford, known as the Undercover Economist. Tim is a Financial Times columnist, a BBC broadcaster, and the author of seven books, most recently 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. He's also the author of Messy, which we're going to be talking about today, The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives. Tim has spoken at TED, Pop Tech, and at the Sydney Opera House, and he's associate member of Nuffield College. I can't wait to talk to him about how parents can embrace mess, randomness, and disorder more in their family life and about what you should do with a teenager who has a messy room. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show today. So the book is called Messy, The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives. It says in here that it took you four years to write the book. So, I mean, it was clearly a ton of work. There's interviews with researchers and pop culture icons all over the world. You've clearly done your homework in order to put this thing together. So what was it that inspired you to write a book on mess and disorder? It was a lot of work. It was a lot of fun as well. I I just became increasingly interested in the things that are hard to pin down, hard to measure, hard to define. Uh, It seems to me that a lot of the most important things in life are that sort of thing. And as an economist, I'm trained as an economist. My first book was The Undercover Economist. I write and broadcast about economics. You, You might think that mess is not an obvious topic for an economist to take on. But actually, I've, I found that even within my own field of economics, all the interesting stuff was the stuff that you, you couldn't define, was the stuff that you couldn't plan. Uh, the economy is terribly messy. And the more I looked at that, the more I spoke to people, the more I researched, the more examples I came up with, and, and before long, I was talking about everything from um, tidying your bedroom to jazz uh, to Arnold Schwarzenegger's diary. I mean, it, it went everywhere, and, and yeah, it was great fun to write the book. So, okay, a big thesis of the book is that sometimes being messy or kind of disorganized is not as bad as we might think, and there's some situations where it might actually be helpful. So a personal, personal thing for you that you're a messy person, you're trying to like justify it with this book and say, hey, it's not so bad, or uh, it's just something you found interesting in other people or what? Well, I mean, I, I, I should confess I'm a pretty tidy person myself, so um, <laughs> I'm just a massive hypocrite. But I was, I was partly interested, I mean, the book is about a lot more than just physical mess. It's about all kinds of you know, improvisation and ambiguity and so on, but, but it, just specifically on the concept of physical untidiness. I was puzzled in my own life as to why 
my kitchen was so tidy, for example, and yet my desk would get so messy and it would bother me and I would try to understand it and I would kind of blame myself. And then eventually I realized it wasn't so much that the messy desk was a, an amazing thing to be proud of. It was just that this is a sign that work is being done. And it's just intrinsic to the process of getting work done that there is going to be some mess. And we shouldn't be constantly beating ourselves up about it. And we shouldn't be beating each other up. We shouldn't be beating our kids up about it either. One of the stories that really struck me in the book was Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, where this amazing man, Ben Franklin, all the inventions and his political achievements and the literature and just what a life. And in his autobiography towards the end of his life, he's reflecting on something he did when he was quite young. He had this thing he called a virtue journal, and he would think about all the virtues he wanted to cultivate in himself, and he would systematically track whether he was succeeding. He's reflecting back on this decades later, and he says, I think it was a great success. Uh, I managed to improve myself in, in every respect except one, and that was orderliness. I, I, was, I wanted to keep my desk tidy. I wanted to keep my appointments book tidy, my bookshelf tidy, and I was never able to do this. And the idea that even Benjamin Franklin is beating himself up and going, oh, just think about what I could have achieved if only I'd been tidier. And I found that again and again, as I was conducting interviews to promote the book, I would have these conversations with very successful journalists, news anchors, people at the top of their profession, and they would say, oh, wow, your book really made me feel better about my messy desk. And right. I thought it was strange that you need me to tell you, a very successful person, that you seem to have, you seem to have made it anyway. Seems despite to be working out desk. for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Exactly. Right. Um, one of the people that I spoke to while researching the book was a psychologist called Steve Whitaker, who's worked with uh, a lot of the big technology companies like Microsoft and IBM. Uh, and he also studied the physical space that, that people have. And he divided people into two groups, the filers and the pilers. And when he investigated uh, what had happened after an office move, the pilers had coped just fine because a lot of the stuff on their desk, they knew what it was. They knew whether it was important. They could, they could throw a lot of it away, just put it in a, in a waste paper basket, throw it in the trash. Um, and after the move, they had manageable archives and they knew where stuff was. Whereas the filers, who in principle you would say, well, we, these were the people who were much more organized. They really struggled with the move. They had massive archives. They couldn't get rid of them. And they didn't know where anything was. That, that sounds weird. Why would that be? And Whitaker said, part of the problem is something he calls premature filing. So if you're constantly trying to get stuff out of your inbox, or you're constantly trying to get stuff off your desk, you file it in categories. But you don't really know what, what it is. You don't really know whether it's important or mm. how it links to everything else. And so you create these folders that only ever have one email in or only ever have one document in and have no connection to anything else. Whereas if you were willing to let the stuff accumulate a little bit on your desk, in your in your email inbox, you start to have a better sense of what it is and whether you can delete it and if you need to file it, how it connects to other things. That makes so much sense. But, you know, then you have to live in a constant state of messy desk. Then you're constantly beating yourself up. 
So maybe then this book is the little fact that you needed to know to be able to tell yourself, hey, actually, this is okay. I'm not like handicapping myself somehow by failing to clean this up faster. Yeah, I think we get fooled by it. There's a sort of um, a correlation that we th we think is causal and we get it the wrong way around. So I find my desk starts to get really messy when, I, when I'm under stress. Mm. And I blame the stress on the mess. I think, oh, this, this mess is making me stressed. But actually what's making me stressed is I'm super, super busy and I don't have time to tidy my desk. And the, the, the fact that the, the desk has got messy is actually the symptom, it's not the cause. So yeah, we need to see what, what's really stressing us. And often we, we realize it's not actually the mess at all. Can you talk about distractibility? There's a study in here you talk about researchers, including Shelley Carson of Harvard, testing people's ability to filter out unwanted stimulus. For example, having a conversation in a busy restaurant and filtering out the other conversations going on around you. And some, some students had weak filters, but others kind of had stronger filters and were better able to like tune other things out. It was such an interesting study because you would think that distractibility was a disadvantage. Yeah, that's bad. You don't want you don't want that. And and I, and I'm sure it is in in some circumstances. And yet, what Shelley Carson found was the people who found it difficult to filter things out, um, who would be distracted by the TV screen in the corner of the bar, or be distracted by the conversation over on the next table. Those students were substantially more likely to have to have already despite being young uh, racked up some significant creative achievement for example to have created artwork that was exhibited at a public exhibition or to have published a novel or to have released an album so i mean these are real creative achievements this is not kind of putting people in the laboratory and asking if they can think of cool uses for a paperclip or something like that, how right. researchers sometimes measure creativity. Now, and we should point out, these are already people, Shelley Carson is at Harvard, she's a professor at Harvard, so she is studying her undergraduate students at Harvard, so they're already high achievers. So we shouldn't, mm. we shouldn't pretend this is a complete universal, but what she's saying is, of the people who've made it to Harvard, the ones who, who don't seem to be able to focus and don't seem to be able to filter, they're the ones who are racking up the serious creative achievements. And I was struck, one of the people that I interviewed for the book was Brian Eno. Brian Eno, amazing musician, a producer, uh, worked with everybody from Coldplay to U2 to I think most famously David Bowie. Um, and one of the many interesting things that I discovered about Brian Eno was that he finds it completely impossible to focus if there's music playing in the background. Um, uh, just couldn't have these conversations. It was, and, and that, I thought, this is the sound of kind of connections being made. You know, this is a person who's paying attention to every detail, whether it's a detail he should be paying attention to or not. And no wonder he produces these amazing creative projects. I mean, one of the albums he worked on with David Bowie, the, the working title for the album was Planned Accidents. Everything they were trying to do was about creating random stuff and seeing whether something interesting happened that they could then get hold of and, and turn into music. 
And it strikes me that it's similar to this phenomenon you write about a little bit later called network of enterprises, having a bunch of different projects all the time that are all in different stages, sort of. Yeah. That all kind of can inform each other. And, 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 just to, I'm not a hypocrite about this one because, as I as I <laughs> may have mentioned, while I was writing Messy, I stopped writing Messy and I wrote an entire different book in the middle of the process of writing Messy, and then I went back and finished <laughs> writing Messy. So this is this is what I'm talking about, and I thought, oh, that's not that's not great, is it, Tim? And then I realised, real high achievers, people I could really admire. And, and only dream about achieving 1% of what they've achieved. They do the same thing. So we're talking about people like uh, uh, the amazing choreographer, Twyla Tharp, uh, uh, Charles Darwin, the creator of the theory of evolution, uh, Albert Einstein, uh, Michael Crichton, who wrote Jurassic Park and all of these other uh, absolutely remarkable uh, creative achievements. I mean, Michael Crichton, so he trained as a doctor then he, started, he wrote books about programming and the history of art. And then he directed a, a film. He directed the original Westworld movie in the 1970s. And then he starts writing novels. And by the mid-1990s, uh, I think it was 1994, he had created the world's most successful TV show, which was ER, and the world's most, wow. most read book, and the world's most successful movie, which I think may have been Twister. And then the next, the next year, he did it again. Most successful TV show and the most successful novel and the most successful movie. Twice, twice in two years. It's, it's, I mean, it's scarcely believable that anybody could do that. And they're different projects. It's not like, it's not like J.K. Rowling, where it's Harry Potter, Harry Potter, and then Harry Potter. Not yeah, that I want to dismiss yeah, yeah. that achievement. But it was, J.K. They were, but they were, all, they were all different projects. And... So, so all of these people are maintaining what one creativity researcher who, who specialized actually in the study of, of Darwin, one creativity researcher called this network of enterprises. And the, and the network of enterprises is uh, you've got a project and that's on the front burner and then you've got another project on the back burner and then you, there's, a, there's another burner behind you and there's a project there and, and there's a project in the microwave and you know yeah. you've got a project in a thermos flask as well as and they're all kind of you're keeping them all hot you're working on on all of them you're moving between one and another and i was trying to think about why this was i actually have a ted talk on this particular concept of i i, I started calling it slow motion multitasking <laughs> and this is not like oh you're on instagram and you're also watching netflix at the same time it's not that it's yeah, it's, right. it's you've got these serious projects going in parallel so a few things that, that seem to be happening one is that you get an idea in one field and it and it carries over to another field there's this cross fertilization yeah. um a second thing is simply that you know you get stuck sometimes and if you're stuck that can be a really really hard place to be but if you're stuck and you've got another great project well that's fine because you just procrastinate by doing something else awesome yeah there's there's these different different things going on but it seems to be very very widespread it's not uncommon in highly creative artists and scientists there's one study of scientists like nobel prize winning scientists like the top people which found that they were way more likely to have serious hobbies than uh than other scientists who were who were less successful 
like they, they they would you know exhibit photography for example at a uh, semi-professional level or they would yeah. give paid concert performances where people were sort of would, were paying for tickets to go and see them play uh, the piano or something as well as being a nobel prize winning physicist wow. it's just extraordinary so because because i feel like that's relevant because parents you know a lot of times are worried when it's like i got this kid who's just like a dabbler who just doesn't seem to want to just kind of like focus and uh, is all over the place and not really like just kind of sinking into one thing so i guess part of me is like oh well so yeah maybe so that's good then just like uh back off but then the other part of me is like what you were talking about with like well these are studying kids at harvard and you're talking about nobel prize people winning nobel prizes you know, how do you tell when that's a good thing and like, hey, I should let my kid kind of experiment with all these different things that they have going on versus when it's a problem and they're, you know, not headed towards the high achieving big breakthroughs route, but more down towards the dabbling and not really uh, kind of getting anything done in any one area. It's it's hard, isn't it? I mean, I'm a parent of, of three kids and, and it's it's very frustrating when you watch them making the mistakes you see yourself making and you and you don't know and, and i mean just I, I can guarantee everyone listening to this podcast um your you know, your children are not going to win nobel prizes my children are not going to win nobel prizes because statistically speaking nobody's children win nobel prizes that just doesn't, <laughs> doesn't happen um, i mean obviously there are about three or four exceptions every year but but for regular kids my instinct is that if they are interested in what they're doing and they've got a lot of different interests and they, they don't seem to be able to settle down, but they're, but they're doing something that seems to have some value rather than just constantly Snapchatting or playing on the Xbox. Yeah, right, um, right. You know, and that's okay too, right? I mean, let's not pathologize. I have one daughter who just seems to be interested in absolutely everything. She watches the sort of these little um, TED-Ed talks and she, yeah. she knits and she's in the Cub Scouts and she seems to be trying to do some kind of programming thing and she's always doing craft in her room and she announces that she's working on a novel but none of us can read it. And it's just, it's just this, this outburst of, of creativity in all kinds of different ways. And I, I mean, I haven't seen her finish that much, but I don't, I don't worry about that because I think, well, I'd be delighted if she was focused on any of this. So the fact that she's doing 10 things, but any of them would be worth doing. Well, I think doing the 10 things that are worth doing is, is even more worth doing. I'm, I'm, I'm very <laughs> pleased to see that. Yeah. And in any case, I mean, what could I do about it if I did, if I didn't like it? What am I going to do about it? <laughs> you can't you can't control someone else's creative life. Uh, I think she's probably going to be fine. There's a great statistic study in here where you're looking at the differences between different kinds of colleges. You're talking about kind of this fact that it can be helpful to collaborate and have friendships with uh, people who are really different from us. And so at certain colleges, you're more likely to make those kind of friends. 
and have those kinds of partnerships and collaborations, whereas at other colleges, you're not. So how does that work and which are the good kind and which are the not good kind? It, it was really interesting uh, because the study was quite counterintuitive. Uh, what it found was that the colleges that were more diverse, that were, were larger, had a bigger spread of backgrounds. The students who went to those colleges ended up in narrower cliques. They ended up hanging out with people who were much more like themselves. And you think, well, how could that be? And the, the smaller colleges, which on the surface were, were less diverse, were just fewer people for a start. So just fewer, you know, less of everything. That there was more diversity in the groups that the individual students had, their friendship groups. When you think about it a bit more, you realize it's, it's not quite as surprising as it might seem. So if you live in a small community, any small community, there's a limit to how much you can pick and choose your friends. There aren't that many people around. So you've got to try and be friends with everybody. Right. And there'll be different ages. There'll be different, different backgrounds, different political persuasions, different life experiences. It's just that's who you've got. Whereas if you live in a, in a, in a big city, uh, you can get on uh, Facebook or you can get on a chat group and find exactly the people who, who not, you know, not only like to play board games, but like to play exactly the kind of board game that you like to play mm. with the exact, with the second edition rules that you really favor. <laughs> uh, and, and you can just zoom in on people who've, who fit what you want absolutely precisely. And because we tend to be attracted to people who are like us, who have interests like us, we, I mean, even people who look like us, um, if you have a much broader choice, you use that choice to self-select. I mean, it's really the same thing that's going on when we browse information sources on the internet. And it used to be that you would, you'd get a newspaper. Maybe you'd, if you were lucky, you'd live in a town that had two local newspapers and you'd, you'd choose one. Sure. And that was it. So that's, you know, and there was, you know, there were three kind of news networks on the television. You pick one. And in a way, that's quite narrow. In another way, you'd get, you just get exposure to what everyone was reading. You know, there'd be, the editor would, exp would, would show you a broad range of news stories and opinion. Whereas now you can, in principle, you could, you could read the news from India. Uh, in, in, they have uh, English language uh, news in India. Uh, you, could, yep. you could read um, Chinese news from Hong Kong or from Singapore. Uh, you could consult specialist publications in any field you like from all over the world. You could use Google Translate to um, check out the news from Peru uh, if you don't speak Spanish. But I'm, I'm willing to bet you don't do any of these things. I don't do any of these things. No. And I'm, I'm a journalist. It's my job to stay abreast of the news. So what we're doing with this infinite amount of choice is we're like, well, I will follow exactly who I want to follow and I will read exactly what I want to read. And paradoxically, mm -hmm. It's we find it much easier to really narrow our horizons because we have more choice. And that study of college students is basically finding the same thing. A big college with lots and lots of choice. We use that choice to surround ourselves with a group of friends who's just like us. Interesting. So smaller colleges are actually more likely to make more diverse friend groups. That's what this study found. And, and I think you can see the logic of how it plays out. 
that makes a lot of sense. But wow, that's not what I would have guessed. No, it's not. I mean, I think about my own situation when I went to, to college. I studied at Oxford University, and the way the Oxford system is arranged is the university is split into colleges. There are about 30 colleges, so the colleges are quite small. And within each college, you'd split into particular subject groups. But physically, the colleges are divided not into floors, but into staircases. It's very Harry Potter, really. You've got this spiral staircase, basically, that goes going up and up and then off on you know, three or four floors. You've got the, the rooms. So there might be 10 or 12 people uh, on your staircase, each with their own room. And mm. if you want to go and see someone on a different staircase, you have to go all the way down the stairs and then go outside and walk across the the beautiful picturesque quadrangle and then go into another staircase <laughs> and you climb back up. And so th there's an encouragement to figure out how to get on with the people who are right there because get to know the people around you. you know, yeah. it's, uh, and I'm still friends with, with the people who, who were just right there with me. And they were really, uh, they were really diverse bunch of people. There was some, there was some evangelical Christians. There was a Muslim there were a couple of militant atheists, people who were quite left-wing. There were people who were quite right-wing. And we all just got on really, really well because we, yeah. we kind of had to because there we were. And I, I didn't recognize what a blessing it was at the time to have that variety of experience. Yeah, you couldn't, I think, have designed a better way to, to get people to meet people who were a little bit different to themselves. Of course, you know, there we were. We were all students. We were all the same age. We were all studying at Oxford University. Of course, there were similarities, sure. but we, there was less opportunity to really seek out people who saw the world exactly the way we did. Yeah, right. That's so interesting. And yeah, certainly social media is making that easier and easier nowadays. Yeah. I mean, and it, it, makes it, it makes it easier to find people who are very different as well, if you want to. We're here with Tim Harford talking about his book, Messy, and how parents can embrace a little more mess and disorder in their family lives. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. You will often find that if you tear the plan up and, and follow what's happening in the moment, you're going to have a, a more interesting, more satisfying experience. Do what you like, arrange it however you want. People would do that. And then just as they were about to sit down to work, the researcher would come in and say, oh, I'm sorry, uh, this doesn't work for our experiment. Sorry. And would just rearrange it to put it exactly the way it, it would have been in the decorated office condition. When you're being told you can arrange it how you want, and then that freedom's then taken away from you. People absolutely hated it. And they hated it in every way you could conceive of hating it. Reading that research on the disempowered office by, by Haslam and Knight really made me think hard about parenting. As I speak, I'm in the middle of a lockdown in, in the UK. We're supposed to only go out for occasional exercise and essential shopping. We know we're supposed to stay in the house. We're lucky we've got a garden. Um, so the children can go, go out in the garden. I can go in the garden, but we're we're trying to cope with this whole process of homeschooling. And we had a holiday planned, a vacation planned for Easter. It's not happening. 
so what do we do? And it's that constant balancing act of trying to trying to sort of suggest some cool things to do, to have a little bit of structure, but at the same time to to really pay attention to what the children are wanting as well. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.